saving souls, of, of saving people, of reconciling others to yourself. And we get to play a part in that. We get to play a part in that with the strangers that we meet or even the people that are lost that we, that we know in our own lives. We get an opportunity to constantly share the gospel. Are we just, we plant seeds and you're the one who provides that growth. And even that growth takes place in discipleship. And I pray, Lord, that we will be mindful, that we will be aware of these opportunities and that we will steward our time well when it comes to this. And God, I, I pray over our own hearts as Shannon comes up and preaches the gospel, as he shares your word. I pray that our hearts will be open as this is another opportunity for us to draw near to you and to grow us in these callings that you have for us. You are good. You are good every day and in every moment. And we thank you for all that you have been doing in us and around us. And we love you so much. It is in your holy son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Daniel. Well, good morning, church. Listen, before we dismiss the kiddos uh, to their classes down the hall, I just want to say a word of appreciation uh, to the McCabe Life Group uh, over the course of the last weekend. Uh, they spent time cleaning out their attics and their closets and their garages um, of all the junk that they didn't want anymore, uh, and they brought it all to one place, and they hosted a garage sale over the course of two days and raised a little over $2,200 to put toward the next five fund. And so just want to say thank you to those members of that life group who took that call, that charge seriously to be a part of what God's doing and helping us move the ball forward in that. And so... Um, Right now, I'm going to go ahead, since the, some of those life group members are serving down the hall this morning, I want to do that before we dismiss the kids. But now the kids, third grade and under, uh, if you're in the room, uh, well, some of you are already down the hall. But kindergarten through third grade, if you're in the room, grade schoolers, you want to go down the hall with Mr. Jim uh, and Ms. Ashley back there uh, for your lesson as we open the scriptures in here this morning for our sermon. As those kiddos make their way out, I just want to say a word of welcome to any of you who may be our guests this morning. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're glad that you're with us. Uh, when you came in on a seat somewhere around you, there may be a card that looks like this. Um, on one side of that card is a place for information about yourself, so we can send you some information about us. The other side of that card is a place for prayer requests, if there are things we can pray with you or for you about. It'd be our honor to do that. If you fill out one of these cards, there's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. Uh, you can drop it there on your way out, and we would love to connect with you. Uh, if you're online with us this morning, or if you'd rather do it electronically, you can pull up the homepage of our website, find that same form there, and fill out that same information, submit prayer requests, um, and we would love to pray with you, pray for you, and connect with you, answer any questions that you might have about Redeemer. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 24 is where we're going to be today. And we open a new series of messages this morning entitled uh, Via Dolorosa. That term is a Latin phrase, uh, which essentially means the way of grief or the way of sorrow. Some have even uh, translated it the way of the cross. 
It's a term that the church has applied over the course of her history uh, to a particular route that Jesus took from his trial before Pilate all the way to the hill of Calvary where he was crucified on Golgotha. And so from his trial to his crucifixion, this way of grief or this way of sorrow was the path that Jesus walked. And between now and Easter, as a church, as we work our way toward Easter, because Easter Sunday is unequivocally the high point on the church calendar where we gather with churches across the globe to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But oftentimes we run right past all the other stuff that comes before the resurrection just to get to the empty tomb. But this, this, these next several weeks, uh, we want to take some time to explore what takes place on Jesus' path to the empty tomb. In fact, we're going to back up even a little bit further than that way from the trial, arrest, and crucifixion of Jesus back to his prediction of his own death through the garden where he wrestles with that to the trial, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection. So I hope you'll join us over the course of these next several weeks as we prepare our hearts for Easter. This morning, for our hearing this morning, if you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me for you to follow along. Matthew writes these words beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is God's word. You know, over the course of the last several months, as I've run around White Rock Lake uh, with one of our other church members down in Dallas, uh, there's this, this flock of, of pelicans down there at White Rock Lake, and they are majestic birds. I mean, they're big birds. The wingspan feels like it's probably as wide as this speaking thrust up here, if not a little bit wider. Uh, they got those big gullets that hang down below their, 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 their mouths in order to scoop up fish out of the water. And as we were running one morning, I said to my friend, I said, hey, man, look at the state bird of Louisiana out there, right? The big, majestic, mighty pelican. And he was like, yeah, man, our state bird is just a mockingbird, right? Um, and so it got me to thinking, though, about the northern mockingbird, right? Because that is the state bird of Texas. If you were go- went to school in Texas, they taught you that's the state bird, right? That is your claim to fame as a bird, people, right? Those of you who are native Texans, right? The northern mockingbird. And the reason the mockingbird right, got its name is because of its in- uncanny ability to imitate or to mimic or to conform its song to the songs or or the voices, so to speak, of other birds. Right? So it can hear the other birds, and it can throw back the same song that they are singing. Essentially, it mimics, conforms, or imitates all these other birds, dozens of other birds. It can imitate their voices. And it's this idea of imitation, church, that I want us to consider for a moment this morning of what it is to mimic, what it is to conform our lives. Because if I had to title this text this morning and this message this morning, it would be this, conforming to a crucified king. 
conforming to a crucified king, imitating, mimicking our crucified king. Right? In, the, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is all about the kingship of Jesus and about the kind of kingdom that he is ushering in. Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who's asking themselves this question. If Jesus really is the king, then where is the kingdom? And so Matthew's unfolding for us almost at every juncture the nature of Jesus' kingship and the nature of Jesus' kingdom. So as he writes, he weaves through the storyline this this idea of the kingdom of God all throughout all 28 chapters to help us readers understand what kind of king Jesus was and what kind of kingdom Jesus ruled over. And so often, as Jesus does, not only does he state the nature of who he is, but he also invites us to conform our lives to the pattern of the way that he walked, the way that he lived, the way that he acted. And so this morning, we want to look at this text through that lens of conforming to a crucified king, mimicking him, singing the same song that he sings with the same voice that he sings it with. And if we're going to do that, church, then there's two things that I want to put on your radar this morning. And the first one is this, is that if we're going to conform to a crucified king, we first, most of all, uh, first of all, must understand the necessity of Jesus' death. The necessity of Jesus' death. Listen, in the text that we read this morning, it begins from that time. Now, that that phrase is referring back to what took place just prior to that. And if you go back in Matthew's gospel, into verses 20 and before, what you're going to find is Jesus having asked his disciples a question about his identity. And they make their declaration. Peter speaks for nearly all of them and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, because you did not figure that out for yourself. (laughs) It's been revealed to you. So you're blessed in that. And so coming off of the heels of, of, of their declaration, Peter's declaration, and then Jesus' affirmation of who he was. He says, that's right. That's who I am. The text says, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples. That word show literally means to teach or to explain or to demonstrate. Now the question is, what is Jesus now teaching his disciples on the basis of this declaration of his identity? This is who he is. Now what does he begin to tell them? What does he begin to explain to them? Demonstrate and show to them. And the text tells us, Matthew says this. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now Matthew doesn't say that Jesus began to show them that he he will go to Jerusalem, that he might go to Jerusalem, that he may go to Jerusalem, that he could, should, or would go to Jerusalem, but that he must go to Jerusalem. Doesn't say that he may die, that he may rise, but that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must rise on the third day. In other words, when Jesus begins to explain the nature of what he's about to them, he doesn't speak in terms of possibilities or potentialities, but in terms of necessities. 
He must suffer. He must die. And he must rise. Which begs the question, why? Why must Jesus suffer and die and rise again? And I want to give you at least three reasons for that this morning, church. That are supported by the rest of the scriptures. First of all, real love makes it a must. It makes it a necessity. There was an Anglican theologian by the name of William Vanstone. And he wrote a book in which he speaks of love. And he says, all human beings... Every single one of us know the difference between false love and true love, between real love and fake love. He says, in a relationship marked by false love, he says, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. As a result, he says, your affection is conditional, right? It's based upon a premise that you love so long as the person is affirming you back and meeting your needs. So there's conditions attached to your affection and your love. He says it's also non-vulnerable. In other words, you hold back certain things from them so you can cut your losses if necessary if the relationship goes south, right? So if things don't work out, you're not totally, deeply vested in the relationship. So you're non-vulnerable and it's conditional. It's based upon what you're receiving back from them. He says that's a relationship built on false love. But in a relationship marked by true love, he says your aim is to use yourself and to spend yourself for the happiness of the other person. Not to use them for your happiness, but to give yourself for theirs. He says that's a relationship marked by true love so your affection is unconditional right you give regardless of whether or not the person is meeting your needs or reciprocating your affection and that it's vulnerable you spend everything you give all that you have and you hold nothing back in the context of that relationship he goes on to say that the problem that we have church is that no one is fully capable of that kind of love We desperately want it and need it in our lives, but there's no human horizontal relationship that's able to provide it for us. There may be measures of it in places and in parts, but it is all all of our human love, when when, when, when it comes to the end of the line, is somewhat false. Because all of us have preconditions upon which we love others. Because we view love as a capital that we're investing, Right? And we only want to invest where we believe that we're going to get a sufficient return on that investment. And we love people for the love we receive from them. Now listen, obviously there are healthy people and there are unhealthy people, right? We all recognize that. But to some degree, no one can give anyone else the love that we're starving for. We need someone to love us radically, unconditionally, and vulnerably, not for their sake, because they need something from us, right? But for our sake and giving everything to us. And listen, church, there's only one human being who ever walked the face of this planet who's capable of that kind of love. And his name is Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Having this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, right? Complete vulnerability, gave all that he had away, emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus vulnerably loves to the nth degree, giving everything that he has and unconditionally. It's not that Jesus was up in heaven thinking, man, if they would just love me back, right, then I would be, I would be fulfilled. So maybe if I love them, they'll love me back. No, that's not how it's going down here. Jesus gives all of himself, empties himself for us. He says, I must, I must suffer and die and rise. Real love makes it a must. Second of all, real forgiveness makes it a must. Real forgiveness makes it a must. Now think about how forgiveness works on a human level. When someone wrongs you, real, I mean really wrongs you, there's always a debt that has to be paid, isn't there? Like for instance, if somebody gets really mad at you tomorrow and shows up at your workplace or your home with a baseball bat and bashes in your windshield, what? Right? I mean, just imagine if that happened to you. Right? There's an economic debt to be paid. There's two things that can happen. Either, first of all, you can make them pay or you can forgive them. But if you forgive them, you have to absorb the debt. You have to pay it yourself. So we understand that at an economic level, but also at a personal, emotional level. When someone robs you of your happiness, when they rob you of an opportunity, when they rob you of your reputation, there is a sense of debt that is incurred when someone slanders your name. There is a sense of a debt that is incurred whenever someone blocks you from a promotion or an opportunity. This person owes you something. Justice has been violated and you can't merely just shrug it off. You can either make that person pay by conceiving and exacting revenge upon them and creating suffering for them and make them pay the debt. But listen, all of us know that if that's the path that we choose, we're becoming more and more like the person whom we have the, who, who has wronged us. The other option is to forgive. See, when you refuse vengeful thoughts and vengeful actions, there is always a pain that's associated with that. Isn't there? You know that to be true. There's a pain. And what do you have to do? You have to absorb that. Either you can exact revenge on that person or you can absorb the debt that they've incurred in extending forgiveness. See, only if you pay the deep cost of forgiveness is there any chance of righting the wrong. See, if you go to someone with vengeance in your heart, right? It's all at a human level. But if you go to someone with a vengeance in your heart, listen, you will never be heard. And you will never be able to bring that person to account. All you can do is exact some form of vigilante justice. So if human forgiveness always involves suffering for the forgiver and the only hope of being reconciled is absorbing the cost ourselves, then listen, church, it should come as no shock to us that in order for God to forgive us, the only way for him to pardon and extend forgiveness to us is if he absorbs our debt. He's got to take on our debt, pay the cost that we, the bill that we have rung up before him. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, this is exactly what Jesus has done. 
In verses 13 and 14, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by the canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, it's at the cross. Jesus must suffer because real forgiveness demands it. At the cross, our debt is nailed, driven through his hands, driven through his feet, piercing his brow as he hangs there. He's absorbing our debt and canceling the record that stood against us. The ledger has been wiped clean. He pays the debt in full and absorbs it for himself. Because there's no other sacrifice that's sufficient to take away sins and extend forgiveness. The author of Hebrews makes that very plain in Hebrews chapter 10. When he says that all the sacrifices that came before, they're but shadows of the reality that would come in Christ. And he goes on to conclude in Hebrews 10 verse 4 that the blood of bulls and goats, it was impossible for them to take away sins. All they did was put forgiveness on layaway. Now listen, I know some of you in here are too young to remember layaway. Well, listen, I remember layaway. As a child, I remember walking into Kmart with my mama. <laughs> Some of y'all don't even know what Kmart was. <laughs> right? And walking past the blue light as it turned up there above the shelves with the specials. The blue light specials. And walking all the way to the back of the store to the layaway desk. Right? With the clothes that we had picked out that were like one size too big for us. Because we weren't going to be wearing those jokers until like three months later. Right, and so we bring the clothes to the layaway desk. They give it to the person back there. They would create a ledger, right? And you, we, my mom would go in like every week and pay ten dollars a week, or twelve dollars a week, or fifteen dollars a week, right? Some of you are like, didn't they have credit cards back then? Like, there's no interest being charged on the layaway. You just put it back there, and they let you come and pay until that debt's paid in full, and then they give you what's been paid for. All the blood of bulls and goats did was put forgiveness on layaway. But here's the difference. They were never making a real payment. Because year after year after year after year after year, on the Day of Atonement, whenever they would bring the goats before the priest and they would slip the throats and they would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, turning aside the wrath of God as the shadow of the Lamb who would come, Jesus Christ, who would once fully and finally pay the debt. The ledger would be ripped in half and our debt would be canceled as it was nailed to the cross. Real forgiveness, church, makes it a must. But thirdly, real freedom makes it a must. See, not only was Jesus' death necessary, but the manner of his death was necessary as well. I want you to notice in the text when it says, Jesus began to teach his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at whose hands? The hands of the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. These were rightful and religious authorities who should have been standing up for what was right and what was true and what was just. And yet they carry out the ultimate act of injustice as Jesus 
was well acquainted, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, knew what it meant to be whipped, what it was like to stand up to those in power and be struck down. Listen, at the end of the day, Jesus, humanly speaking, we might say, was a victim of unjust power in his arrest, his trial and execution. Like they ramrodded that thing like none other. Trumping up charges against him. Right, in, but in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul goes on from talking about the, our debt having been canceled to something else that took place at the cross. That he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And while Paul is likely referring to demonic rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, Jesus also disarms human rulers and authorities through his resurrection and puts those who were stacked against him to shame as he rises from the grave. Those who had rejected him, he rises and puts them to shame. What this means is this, church, that behind human abuse, behind human injustice, behind human exploitation are people, of people are demonic forces. Those two things go hand in hand. It's not either or. And when Jesus goes to the cross, what he wins through losing, through losing, he gets power through serving, and he receives all riches and glory by giving himself away. What Jesus wins is our freedom by turning the world's values on its head. See, the glorification of power and recognition and privilege and status and money and wealth and all that comes with it was defeated. Their power is broken over those who would trust in Jesus. Because what Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection teaches us, listen, is this about freedom. The worst thing that corrupt power can do to you in this life is kill you. And the power of death is broken over you when you see that Jesus must die, but he also must rise on the third day. Not only must he die and suffer, but he must be raised from the grave three days after. Nothing has power over you, church, when you think out the implications of Jesus' death and his resurrection. When you turn your mind on, you begin to think through those things, there is nothing in this world that has power over you. Real freedom makes it a must. Understand the necessity of Jesus' death. But the second thing this text, I believe, teaches us about conforming to a crucified king is this. Not only intellectually understanding the must of Jesus' death, but second of all, following the pattern of Jesus' death. Following the pattern of Jesus' death. Listen, in verse 22, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, listen, Jesus, things ain't going down this way, bro. <laughs> right? Surely you're not going to suffer. Surely you're not going to die, Jesus. I mean, we got plans. And our plans got plans, Jesus. Right? Because you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response, Jesus tells Peter that he is a hindrance to his mission to the kind of king that he would be. And he says, get behind me. And the reason he says, get behind me, Satan, calls Peter Satan, is because Peter had adopted a way of thinking that was shot through with worldly satanic wisdom. 
a way of seeing and processing and engaging the world that was marked by Satan himself. Listen, in verse 23, the word, when, Pete, when Jesus says to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. That word to set literally means to be wise, to have understanding, to direct your thoughts toward a particular way of thinking and seeing and processing and engaging the world. And the reference to Satan in that passage, it takes us all the way back to Matthew chapter 4, where Satan shows up in the wilderness during Jesus' temptation and says to Jesus, you can have the glory without the cross and the suffering. And that's exactly the mindset Peter's operating with as well. That's why he says what he says to Peter. Peter's thinking the same thing. And Jesus says to Peter, your mind is not set. You're not thinking with the wisdom of God, but with the wisdom of man. Your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. Which begs this question then, what does it mean to set our minds on the things of God? To direct our thoughts to the things of God? What does that mean? Now, we could speculate all day long about what, what, Jesus is reference, what Jesus means by the things. Or if you take a look at the text and see what I think Jesus has in mind when he's speaking of the things of God. I want you to notice immediately on the heels of making this statement to Peter in verse 23. The text says in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples. There's a logical connection between Jesus referring to the things of God, then Jesus begins to teach them what is Jesus teaching them about. I believe there's a logical connection between the things of God and the very next things that come out of Jesus' mouth as he begins to instruct his disciples. So after Jesus rebukes Peter for setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God, Jesus begins to instruct his followers about what it means to follow him. What it means to follow the pattern of his death. And he says, set your mind on the things of God. On denying yourself. On taking up your cross. And on following me. And listen church, our minds don't naturally set themselves on those things. It doesn't come naturally. So let me see if I can, I can make it plain for you. And what I, th I think Jesus is referring to here. So whenever a movie is being produced... Right? There's all kinds of different people who work you know, in front of the camera and behind the camera in order to make that movie a reality. Right? And so every year at the Academy Awards, they give you know, awards for best composer and awards for best uh, videography and awards for best you know, editing and all those kinds of things. But the three major categories of people working to make a movie what it is you have actors and you have producers and you have directors the actors are the ones in front of the camera the producers are the ones on the back side of all the filming pulling it all together and the directors are the ones who are directing the shots as the actors carry out their lines from scene to scene. The director is the one who is coaching the actors. Right? They pay these actors millions of dollars to shoot these films. You would think they would know how to play their parts. But the directors are telling them how to play their parts. In order for those actors to be able to convey the original intentions and thoughts of the author or writer of the script. So the directors 
are coaching the actors and saying, don't think this here, think this. Right? Don't use this intonation, use this one. Don't feel this here, but feel this. Right? The director is saying, not this, but this. And whenever Jesus talks about setting his mind, Peter's mind, on the things of God or the things of man, he's... I, it's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is, I think, affer- encouraging Peter to do, right? Because it stands to reason, if you're setting your mind on the things of man, embracing and adopting this worldly, satanic wisdom, the solution to that, set your mind on the things of God and embrace and adopt this, 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 this godly, heavenly wisdom. And what it takes for you and I to do that, because we don't do it naturally, is to direct our thoughts towards that end. And say to ourselves, don't think this here, think this. And what Jesus says we ought to think about are these three things. And listen, this is not the power of positive thinking. Okay? This is directing your thoughts to the prevailing understanding of, and wisdom that God has given through His Word and is illumined by His Holy Spirit. To fix your minds on the things of God. Let me give you these three things real quick about what this looks like. First of all, fix your minds on the fact that real life, church, is not found through self-actualization, but through self-denial. Listen, we live in a day and age, the narrative in our culture tells us that if you want to experience real life, here's what you've got to do. You've got to look deep inside of yourself. And you've got to discover who you are. You've got to discover what matters to you. And then you've got to live out your true identity that you have discovered because you've done all this internal soul searching and you've got to give full expression to every desire that you have. That's the narrative that the culture tells us would produce real, true, vibrant life. Look inside of yourself and live out your, express your desires. Give full vent to those things. And yet the narrative that Jesus tells us is the way to life. Is to measure every desire that we have according to a standard outside of ourselves. And then to embrace those desires that match up to that standard. And reject those desires that fall short of it. Jesus says, if you want to follow me. You have to deny yourself. And that assumes that there is a self that is being denied and a self that is doing the denying. So you're measuring everything that you feel internally against something external, right? That's not what Elsa did, by the way, in Frozen. Okay, she just wants to let it all go, right? Not hold it back anymore, okay? No, no, I, I don't care what the world may say. No right, no wrongs, no rules for me. That's her song, right? And that is the narrative that is being articulated through our culture, right? That if you find a desire operating in your soul, that in order to be a fully self-actualized human being, you have to live that out. You can't say no to that. You have to say yes to that if it's something that you want. And Jesus says, if you want real life, 
If you want real life, there are some things you have to learn to say no to. Setting your mind on the things of God. Directing your thoughts. Second of all, setting your thoughts, directing your thoughts on the things of God means that real life is not found through self-indulgence. But our culture tells us that the way to life is to fill your life with every imaginable indulgence, right? Every imaginable indulgence, every conceivable comfort, every possible pleasure. And listen, I had one of those yesterday from Bucky's. Okay? I, had, I don't know if you've ever had the overbite from Bucky's. Right? It's, it's, it is, oh my goodness. Right? It is this, it's about this big around. And it is, they have, they have a milk chocolate version and a dark chocolate version, and a white chocolate version, but each of them is filled with creamy peanut butter filling. I mean, amazing. Amazing. Possibly sinful. But listen, so many of us have bought into a narrative that in order to live real, vibrant life, Right, that we have nothing but the finest foods crossing our lips and vacation and nothing but the most tropical of destinations and everything. Yeah, <laughs> I, guess I, I knew I'd get a look from some of you, right? So vacation to all these tropical destinations and have all the, the bells and whistles and toys that you can possibly imagine. We would indulge ourselves when Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Listen, that idea of taking up your cross is not the idea of self-indulgence, but the idea of self-sacrifice. Because that idea of taking up your cross, listen, we, that, uh, that, the image of the cross gets used in so many ways in modern culture. We wear it as jewelry around our neck or on bracelets or different places. We put it on bumper stickers or have it in our homes, on walls. Right? All those, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but the cross sometimes gets sanitized in that manner. Because when Jesus says, take up your cross, it's, a, it's, not, a pa- also, listen, it's not a passive thing that you're resigning yourself to. It's not like a dog who wets the carpet constantly is your cross to bear. Right? But taking up your cross is an active engagement in the mission of God in the world. It's through in willfully taking upon myself the sacrifice of some things that are not evil, that are not bad. Right? There's nothing, well, the overbite might be a little sinful, but listen, fine food and great vacations and all kinds of tools and toys, those things are not evil in and of themselves. But the question is, am I willing to set some of that aside in order to pursue something that's more valuable? Self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. Set your mind on the things of God. Fix your mind on what is valuable in the kingdom. Self-denial, self-sacrifice. But third, real life, church, is not found through self-rule, but through self-resignation. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The narrative in our culture tells us that the way to real life is through answering to no one other than yourself. 
to have no authority above you. Right? Some of you are like, man, that would be amazing. Right? To not have a boss that I have to report to. Some of you are like, that would be amazing not to have parents that I have to answer to. That would be amazing. Right? To have no authority other than me. To have self-autonomy and independence. Okay? Come and take it, you know? That's, that's the mindset. But Jesus' narrative tells us that the way to life is through giving up your absolute autonomy and submitting yourself to Him, to follow Him, to put your feet on the path of discipleship, that you're not following your whims, you're not following your wishes, you're not following your wants, but you're resigning your will to His, to follow Him. Our minds don't naturally think about those things. Which is why Jesus says, Peter, you're setting your mind, you're directing your thoughts to the prevailing wisdom of the world, which is ultimately satanic. At the end of the day, underneath all these cultural narratives that say your best life is going to come whenever you have absolute self-rule. Your best life is going to come when you have absolute self-indulgence. Your best life is going to come whenever you have absolute, absolute, all right, self, ah, what was the first one? Self-actualization, Right? Reaching your full potential, unlocking all of your desires. Underneath all those narratives are demonic forces. That for those who embrace them today, Jesus' word would be the same. Get behind me, Satan. Because that's the way our minds naturally are bent. But we have to set our minds, direct our thoughts the things of God, to self-denial, to self-sacrifice, and to self-resignation, laying our will down, submitting to His. Listen, if we're going to conform to a crucified king, we have to understand the necessity of his death and then follow the pattern of his death. Where are there areas in your life right now, church? Maybe you understand the nature or, or the necessity of real love, the necessity of real forgiveness, and the necessity of real freedom. But where are there areas in your life right now where you've yet to resign your will to His? Where there are places that you could sacrifice good things for better things? And where are there areas in your life right now? Right now, that you've given vent to desires that you need to repent of and begin to say no to some things and deny. There's a self, your, your self that's being renewed and conformed to the image of Christ is saying no to the self that is still encapsulated with the flesh. Where are those areas in your life? I suspect I know where some of them are in mine. But where are they in yours? Understand the necessity. Follow the pattern, church. Be conformed. Like a mockingbird who sings the song of a blue jay. May these thoughts be the song of your heart. As you follow our crucified king. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you today for your grace and for your mercy, for your kindness and goodness, for your gentleness with us. That before you ever called us as your disciples or indicated to us what it would look like for the Spirit to be active and at work in our lives, bearing His fruit, that Your Son bore all those fruit on our behalf. So that we might be forgiven, that we might be free, and that we might know that we are loved. So help us to understand why Jesus says He must go to the cross, that He must suffer many things, and that He must rise again. Because without those, we would always be left questioning whether or not you really love us. Whether or not we could really be forgiven. And wrestling to know whether or not we could ever really be free. So Father, as we aim to pattern our lives after Jesus' death, help us to set our minds on the things that are true and right in your eyes not on the things that are true and right in the eyes of our culture. Help us to pattern our life after the story that you're telling, not after the story that our culture is telling. May we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow your son, whoever he may lead. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning, church, to stand with us as we sing in response to what God has said to us through his word. And as we sing, may we acknowledge our dependence upon the Lord, celebrate His grace, and reaffirm our desire to set our minds, maybe even through this song, that we would be turning the thoughts of our minds towards God. Self-denial. Self-resignation. Giving up self-rule. And trusting Him power to do those things.